Hi, welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi, everyone. My name is Aaron Dang, and I am excited to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Nakai. Dr. Nakai began her career as a director for diversity at the University of Utah School of Medicine and at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. She then served as assistant dean for admissions, recruitment, and student life. That is a lot of titles all at one time at the Loyola University Chicago Stritch School of Medicine. While at Loyola, Dr. or Dean Nakai, as we know her, graced us with her presence on this podcast in one of our first episodes entitled Must Hear Discussion on Medical School Admissions, which has quickly become one of our most popular and most listened to episodes on this podcast. Since leaving Loyola, Dean Nakai has moved to Southern California, where she served as Associate Dean for Student Affairs, as well as the Associate Professor of Social Medicine, Population, and Public Health at the University of California Riverside School of Medicine. Currently, Dean Nakai serves as a Senior Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Partnership at the California University of Science and Medicine. Now, that was a lot of roles, so I will stop my blabbering, and I am so excited to announce our esteemed guest for today, Dr. Nakai. Thank you so much, Aaron. It's great to be back on the podcast, and I've been following all the Medicus stuff since the beginning, and it's just wonderful to see how successful it is. You guys have done some great work. That is so exciting to hear. It's always a good bonus for us to hear that people are actually really enjoying our content. So outside of your previous professional roles, would you be able to give us a little bit of your own introduction outside of all of the things that you're doing professionally to our listeners? Yeah. So personal introduction. Uh, I am the fourth of five children. I'm a first-generation college student. I am biracial, so I am my own little mashup. Uh, my mom is seventh-generation, um, like Polish, Portuguese, Western European, and my dad is third-generation Japanese-American. So uh, my ancestors are immigrants on both sides. My dad's side, obviously, much more recent. My ancestors were um, imprisoned during World War II, and my family's the seat of where my family immigrated to in the United States is actually in Northern California in a town called Newcastle. Um, it's still in our family today. It's called Twin Peaks Orchards. So when I get up to Northern California, I love to go and visit that the homestead. My aunt is there. My cousin is there. It's uh, a citrus farm, um, citrus orchard to this day. So that's uh, a little bit about me. Let's say I have three opponents. I mean, children. <laughs> um, my son is 17 and my girls, I have uh, die-die twins. They are now 14, started high school this year which has been really busy. My husband, he's in school. So he's a former mechanical fabrication pipe fitter and welder, an absolute math nerd. And so decided to embark on a second career becoming um, a math and physics teacher. So he's uh, in the middle of his schoolwork and everything right now. And he's also a full-time dad. So, and one Doberman that hopefully will not make an appearance um, on the podcast. <laughs> we always enjoy the dogs, especially in this post-COVID world. Actually, current it's COVID norm, world. Huh? It's the norm. <laughs> I think it's always a little bright light in the middle of the day when you see the dog poking its head in from around the corner <laughs> on the background. So I talked to you about this a little bit before we started recording, but I just wanted to say that I listened to your episode again from 2019 
just before preparing for this podcast and it kind of made me go down a little bit of memory lane because I remember first listening to the episode before I even applied for medical school, before I even knew I was coming to Loyola and before I knew I was going to be involved in Medicus. And now this is my fifth to 10th episode somewhere in there. Um, but your episode helped guide me through that tough medical school application process. So for that, I just wanted to say thank you and a huge thank you for your time, not only back then, but also today too. Of course. It's so wonderful to hear. I it's gratifying to hear that what I do is helpful because that's always my goal is, you know, really to make things easier for students. And as a first gen student myself, I know that this journey can be so difficult and confusing. Uh, so yeah, I have a, a pod, uh, a couple of podcasts out there that I've been fortunate to be invited to do, um, including Medicus. And my book is out there as well. That's really centers stories of first gen students um, and immigrants and undocumented students and their journeys to medicine. Um, and it all kind of started with the blog at Loyola. <laughs> so <laughs> it all starts somewhere at Loyola, right? Yeah. So our topic for today is diversity within medical school admissions. So I just wanted to start off by asking you what your role as Dean of Diversity has been at all of these different institutions and what that role has entailed. What are the responsibilities of what people call Dean of Diversity? Yeah, well, my title is long. Um, I realize in hearing you give my introduction that I have had a series of very long titles with lots of commas that have not actually fit on business cards very efficiently. So I think a huge part of what leaders in diversity, equity, inclusion um, in medical education do is, is focus on representation, equity practice, and like, I think harm prevention, right? So in education and, and the integration of diversity into what we do, and all of those things are toward larger goals of eliminating health inequities, eradicating racism and white supremacism from medicine and from our institutions, which is just incredibly challenging. When I first started at University of Utah, a lot of our focus was just on supporting a very tiny, small group of minority students and working on what we then called pipeline programs, we now call pathway programs. So it was really on supporting students we had and working on pipeline programs to get them in. But changing hearts and minds and focusing on equity practice and anti-racism, like we weren't using a lot of that terminology in the early 2000s when I started my career. And what are some of the changes that you've seen since you've been within this field for the past 20 plus years? What are some of those developments that you've seen within diversity and within medical school admissions that has helped to update some of that language or help support some of those pathway programs? Yeah, so there's been changes in accreditation requirements that have made um, pathway programs mandatory for all institutions. There have been um, some big changes on national organizations. Uh, there's a group at the Association of American Medical Colleges called the Group on Diversity and Inclusion. Um, did not exist when I first started. Um, so we were a small faction of the student affairs group. We were called the Minority Affairs Section, and we were one of the only national minority focused groups in medical education within the association. And we did not have, you know, our, our committee structure was kind of an anomaly. And I really credit my colleagues from the Southern Medical Schools and from the National Association of Minority Medical Educators for pushing at that time and agitating at the AMC to get the Minority Affairs section even started. Uh, and we worked really hard. We, we, you know, the Nickens Award has been around for my entire tenure 
um, Herb and, and um, the late Herb Nickens and his wife, um, Dr. Patrice Nickens. And so there's just, there's been a, a steady flow of, of folks really trying to work within institutions and then some outside agitation that has created more structures, more leadership, more attention toward uh, cultural humility, cultural competency, which has now kind of shifted into structural vulnerability and understanding structural racism. I didn't think that in my lifetime I would ever hear the white, hetero, cisgender, male president of the AMC say things like anti-racism and white supremacism. So that's been a pretty big shift just even in the last five years as we've taken on you know, some additional challenges and recognitions of what really needs to change. And that has, of course, come with a tremendous amount of backlash. <laughs> so... And could you speak a little bit further on what this backlash has looked like and and how you've been able to deal with it both at your institution and nationwide? Yeah, I mean, I think it all kind of started with the recognition of the way that we misuse and mishandle and, you know, integrate wrongly race in medicine. Uh, A colleague of mine, Andrea Dayrup, um, but she focuses on pathology approaches to debunking and correcting the use of race as a biological factor in all these textbooks. And she's like a Robbins editor. So, you know, there you go. Um, But a lot of, a lot of the backlash has really been around why are we changing some of these things? And it, it started getting a little bit more notoriety when I don't know if you remember the the Wang article came out in cardiology that was really kind of slamming a lot of diversity efforts and saying like diversity is tantamount to lowering standards. And actually my colleague Oyan Poon and I wrote a blog response to that um, to talk about, you know, we as Asian American identified scholars and academics really supporting affirmative action, if that's what, you know, people still want to call it. And then there was the, the podcast that came out that was the JAMA podcast around like, you know, the, the white cisgender, you know, heteronormative male saying, well, it wasn't discrimination outlawed in 1960. So now, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. And this is irrelevant. And I think the recognition of this gap, right, that we are so incredibly segregated in our realities, that um, there are folks who are providing care for patients every day that actually don't think that racism is a problem anymore. Cue the murder of George Floyd, and the slew of additional murders um, of, of Black Americans and a tons of youth of color and women of color and the, the greater media attention that that is now receiving and some reckoning. And I knew at that time that I needed to go back to DEI. So I, I had spent six years in kind of student affairs and admissions full time. And always DEI is always like a part of who I am and what I bring to all spaces. But I knew that I wanted to work on change on a larger level full time again. So actually just kind of diving into that a little bit more deeply on that personal level, what was that decision-making process and how has that move from a dean of diversity at Utah into admissions role and then back into diversity, how do those relate? How does this dean of diversity work actually relate with admissions? And what was that personal process for you and that thought process? You spoke a little bit about it to return to the space and and to help continue impacting uh, students who might be from more underprivileged backgrounds. Yeah. I think for me, just working with students and seeing the absolute skill and wisdom and richness um, and bandwidth that trainees of different backgrounds bring. I mean, when we started to really operationalize diversity 
as a core value of excellence, um, when I was the Dean of Admissions at Loyola, it became really clear that the caliber of students that we were able to recruit to our institution with diversity as central was off the charts great, right? So it was a benefit to everyone. And, and I was incredibly proud, still am incredibly proud of the, of the classes that I um, admitted and where they are now and the work that they've done, um, the bajillions of languages they speak and the number of countries they're born in and so many students that are first generation and immigrant and undocumented. And, and I, it has been really gratifying to see the connections that students have with each other, despite maybe their you know, differences on the surface of it, folks found some incredibly meaningful friendships and deep connections, um, and even love connections that which just want to happen in the in the classes of, of medical students uh, in this phase of life. So, I think diversity at admissions is the core of continuing to recruit the the people that we need to create this change and to work on eliminating some of these gaps in health access. Um, we know that you know, diverse practitioners. I think there's this amazing study and we can look it up and put it in the, in the show notes, but there's an amazing study that, that looks at OB outcomes by black OBs and white OBs and shows that there's no difference in outcomes for black mamas and white mamas that are cared for by black OBs, but there's a big difference in black mamas and white mamas that are cared for by white OBs, right? So we know that we can attend to lots of health equity issues um, by focusing on diversity. And I think admissions as the front door of the profession is a huge responsibility um, to the public in delivering providers that can relate and that can deliver care in a way that is culturally sensitive and that actually meets the needs of, of patients. So again, I feel like you're you're already reading my mind because you're talking about this already and moving into like, why is it important to have diversity? But diversity is that trigger word that I feel has come up over and over again within both undergraduate and medical admissions. It's a word that I feel like has been thrown around by talking heads within mainstream media, as well as within private conversations. And you've, you've explained a little bit of the importance of why it's important to have a diverse medical school class. And I think your fingerprint is still felt at Loyola today, where a lot of our classes are extremely diverse racially, um, ethnically, um, within sexual orientation, within even within those groups, there is a lot of diversity. And Loyola is known for having classes that are majority women, which a lot of my classmates are some of the strongest women I've met. So mm -hmm. what, what does it mean for you to have a diverse medical school class? What does that mean to you, kind of building off of what you've talked about before? Why is that important to the class and the institutions that you're at? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that we can provide excellent care without diversity. And the science, the science that we have, you know, is is even has huge limitations based on the lack of breadth of diversity that we've collected that science even on. And and I think that it's part of the challenge of the buzzword for diversity is that people use it to mean code for race or ethnicity or black and and I don't do that. Like if I mean black, then I'm just going to say black, right? If I mean Asian or Chinese, like I'm just going to say those things. I think we need to be really specific about what we're asking for, but we also need to be careful about what we're asking diversity to do for us. So this is a little bit of the, the thinking that I think early initiatives made the mistake of is focusing only on representation and saying, if we can recruit 
X number of people of like and kind of XYZ race or ethnicity, and we bring them to the institution, then like a magic pebble, we will all of a sudden become culturally competent, right? And also placing squarely on the shoulders of historically excluded groups, responsibility for caring for populations that have received substandard care and have also been historically excluded. Um, that's important and it very often happens, but as a philosophy, it's kind of garbage, right? That's perpetuating the segregation that existed um, in, in Chicago in the late 1800s and early 1900s, where we had specific hospitals only for black people and said, black people, you train over there, you go to your schools and you take care of your own people. And so this is just an integrated argument of that same thing. Oh, well, we'll let historically excluded students from these different backgrounds in with the expectation that they can only go into these primary care fields and take care of underserved communities because that's the answer, right? Rather than, isn't it all of medicine's responsibility to take care of everyone? And shouldn't every person who's training develop the bandwidth and skills and capacity to provide excellent care to patients um, from a broad array of backgrounds by age and by, by gender identity, by sexual orientation, by race and, and all of those things. So I think early on, we really got it wrong because we focused so much on representation and not on the history of exclusion of white supremacism in medicine that got us to this point in the first place. Um, and I think people have experienced a ton of harm um, from the institutions as they trained because we paid no attention to the everyday racism that just sort of you know, lurks around in, 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 in our textbooks. I mean, in everywhere, there's signs of that, right? Not seeing people um, from all walks of life in our cases, in our photos, in, in our pathology slides. I mean, that's another thing that um, Dr. Dayrup also does is, you know, work on representation for even imaging, even, even the um, patient sim stuff, right? It has a specific look, a specific um, those are all very subtle messages of historical exclusion that are just baked into almost everything that we do. And we're just now starting to pay more attention to it. Yeah. And I, I think that has sort of come into fruition. We've seen a lot more of that with an explosion of a lot more texts coming out talking about what dermatologic findings look like on black skin or skin that is not white. Um, yep. Even Asian skin can look a little bit different than those of other racial groups with a lot of these dermatological findings. And as someone who personally is training within the Chicagoland system, I'm able to see a lot more Black Americans than I did when I was training as a pre-med in California, that just because of the demographic makeup. But right. that has been to my benefit. And reflecting our practitioners with the populations that we're serving is also just as important um, as you were kind of mentioning and talking about as well. Yeah, and you know, I think lots of groups get left out of this lens. I mean, white supremacism and this, this exclusionary lens hurts medicine, it hurts science, and it hurts everyone. We are behind in some areas and in, in innovations because we don't put a lot of time and energy into the science for historically excluded groups. Like, I'm sure that as a student, you've come across the Women's Health Study which gets cited all the time for all these best practices related to women's health and, and menopause and hormone therapy. And, um, and it's, it's really like one of the only ones, right? And, and as I was doing my own research for some of my own health issues, I got really frustrated that it really seemed like that was all there was, right? And it's held as the gold standard despite a lot of criticism and it not being replicated. And I thought, we're 
51% of the population, right? Or 50.5 or, you know, a little more than half. And there's just not enough even known about basic hormone and health management for us. And those are huge blind spots and gaps, right? And, you know, the, the cynical, I talked to a colleague in medicine about it and they just said, yeah, why is that news that no one cares about women's health? And I just thought, how many people think now that there's half or more women going into medicine that we've solved that problem, but it's going to take more and more time, you know, a century. Uh, we just have got to equity around applications in 2017. It's going to take years for those folks in their careers to mature and to actually get up through leadership. We still have huge disparities in full professor, in the deans and leadership of medical schools, in all of the gatekeeping roles, um, disparities in publishing, who are the editors and gatekeepers of even knowledge in the field. So representation is only the beginning of what needs to change in order for us to advance equity. So you talked about it just exactly how a lot of the research showed in 2017 was the first time that women had begun to outnumber men, according to AAMC data. Since then, that percentage of women has risen all the way up to 55% of the total matriculants at Loyola. That number has gone up to 70, 75% of our matriculants have been women. Mm -hmm. What What do you think has sparked this shift? And especially within this male-dominated field, we've kind of talked about the access to woman-driven data and some of the the history that we have in medicine of excluding women from proper data and healthcare. What benefits has this shift, the shift in gender brought to this previously male-dominated field? Yeah, I mean, I I work with a lot of DEI officers through a couple of my other roles. Um, one is the lead faculty for Equity Matters at the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. And what I'm seeing is these perspectives around equity that often come from folks who identify as women um, make things better for everyone. For example, things like parental leave, things like being able to take a personal day, aspects of well-being that I think have been raised because they can sometimes be so much more acute um, for women trainees um, than for those who identify uh, as men. And more and more, I think leadership and attention to leadership, relational types of leadership, servant leadership, different ways of, of being in charge have been good for medicine. We have to start to break into some of the hierarchy and some of the silencing that we know isn't good for patient safety and isn't good for psychological safety and isn't good for innovation and all of that. So hopefully the, the increased, you know, diversity and gender diversity overall, you know, because we have a lot of folks who are genderqueer, who are agender that are, that are coming in and really bringing even more perspectives into what we should be doing and saying, how much are we really pinning on gender? And I, and I do think that we'll continue to look at that very carefully and be focused not on gender identity, but on biological factors related to hormones, chromosomes, other, other pieces that are much more indicative of risk rather than just gender identity, right? Because I'm sure in a lot of the clinical discussions that you've had, a person's gender identity being different than their sex, you know, assigned at birth, and how does that change, um, you know, the treatment protocols? And I think race is rapidly, you know, we're, we have a lot of folks really trying to push that conversation because this is making medicine better for people to pay attention and to think more critically rather than using some of these shortcuts that really come from a, a place of bias. When you mentioned this, it brought up one of the 
the interactions I had with one of our my patients who came in, I was in my peds rotation. And so this pediatric patient came in who was female presenting, obviously had longer hair in the style of, I would say, the stereotypical woman. And as we re- began to talk, it was very obvious that this individual identified as a he, him. And mm-hmm. I went into the conversation, did my best to respect their gender pronouns, but felt like the patient was pretty closed off to a lot of the healthcare professionals, the myself, the nurse that were coming in. And I worked with one of the providers there and the provider came in and basically opened up with saying, I understand that you identify as he, him. Why don't we talk to the administration and see if we can get that change within your chart? And I think when that was said, it showed that that patient's face just lit up and Mm -hmm. it showed that 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 patient finally was being heard within a system that I think they weren't being heard in for so long. Mm -hmm. And it was my first experience with how even just a simple change in how we perceive these things or how we're able to, within our system, you know, change pronouns within their chart. And Mm -hmm. these types of things actually matter and actually change, especially for peds patients who don't have a ton of experience within the world Mm -hmm. and are still still navigating themselves. Yeah, are still finding their voice in in all of that. Exactly. And I think that was just a really great experience for me personally in my training to, to further understand how I can help my patients feel more comfortable and open up to me within the clinic. Yeah. I think um, having more women in surgical fields, for example, has helped us pioneer different techniques. I think I was reading about hip replacement and we didn't have a female skeleton specific sized joint until like the early nineties. And I was like, what? But that's because a lot of the STEM fields that create those and a lot of the folks that were putting them in never really thought about it. And it's like, well, if an anthropologist can tell if a skeleton was likely male or female based on some curvatures and structures, then shouldn't there also, you know, be something with how we treat people's bones or at least some customization, right? So then it's like, oh, wait a minute, maybe one size doesn't fit all. And thinking about like not using a one size fits all. In other words, not using the default male heteronormative, all those things helps us think more critically and provide more specialized care, which means better outcomes for everyone, right? So if you're, you know, a male identified person, but you're smaller in stature, or, you know, like now we actually have better products for everyone because of some of the innovations brought on um, by diversity and the diverse thinking that's a product of diverse teams. One other topic that I wanted to touch on before we move on to some of the other questions that we had prepared was that a word or a phrase that you've been using is white supremacy within our conversations a lot. And I think with a lot of the mainstream rhetoric, when that word is said, people start to get a little bit personalized with that, that that word seems to add on, oh, you're talking about me, or maybe some of our listeners might be feeling similar in that manner. And I think I wanted to break that down because I, I know that when we or when you are using that word, it's within the context of a, a system and, and of systemic issues. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to see what your your idea and your definition of that was and, and to hopefully deconstruct that word a little bit more to, to have people feel a little bit more open using that word of white supremacy in a context where we're not really attacking anybody. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that question, opportunity to break it down. So I try to use white supremacism as uh, to denote that this is an ideology, right? This is like capitalism or 
fascism, right? It's it's a way of thinking and making sense of the world that also communicates values and practices. And in white supremacism, that system is preferring and championing whiteness at all costs, even at, at the cost of people who do identify as white. There's a lot of really great books that try to kind of break down what this means, but our specific social construction of white supremacism in the United States is, is built on uh, a cast with Black Americans at the very bottom. Um, and, it, and it was invented in the United States in the colonial era and then moving forward to create specific divisions of labor and hierarchy um, and caste that would a lot of the folks who, who were in, in the top caste and in the, in the wealthy and ruling class that came over believe that that would, that would be the best order of things, right? So a ton of our even medicine is, is based on notions of the inferiority of bodies that are not white. So I want to be clear that, yes, it's based on Black Americans occupying lower castes, but also excludes all other kinds of bodies and people and ways of being um, that don't fit whiteness, even including some groups of white immigrants that then assimilated into white, but Jews weren't considered white at once, Irish weren't considered white at once. I mean, there's lots of interesting sociological research out there that kind of demonstrates how whiteness as an ideology is is part of that, right? So I, I really encourage students to understand your heritage. And one way that you can eradicate white supremacism is to not identify as white, to identify as a fourth generation Irish American or a third generation Polish American or Armenian or or Welsh or you know do your ancestry and, and understand where you're where you're from and talk about specifically what your origin story is because white is not a country it's not an origin it is an ideology and it is something that communicates value in in American society uh, in ways that is super hurtful I'm not saying you're a bad person if you identify as white but I'd ask our listeners to kind of think about why all of these other things are constructed differently and and almost always in contrast to uh, a quote norm, which is whiteness, right? When that isn't an origin story, it, it is an ideology um, that is developed in the United States. So I think we've talked a lot about why diversity is important and, and the strength of diversity, but moving into how we can improve it, what are some of the biggest hurdles to overcoming and increasing diversity within medical school and specifically with you and your background in admissions, what role does admissions play in overcoming this challenge? Yeah, I think firstly, we have to kind of make this more accessible and we our tools have changed over the years. Um, the AMCAS application has evolved over time. We give way more uh, free application waiver that students can get, the FAP has evolved um, over time, the tools that, that we provide, the Khan Academy collection, we've tried to make more elements of preparation more accessible. One thing that we have steep challenges mitigating are the structural vulnerabilities of applicants. That is, we cannot give you more time. And what a lot of students don't have that they desperately need is income support. Because if you don't have time because you have to work, it takes away from your energy um, and ability to do all those things. And, and in admissions, very often we conflate um, performance with potential. 
right? So one of the ways that I found incredible talent as an admissions dean at Stritch, and one thing that I think Dean Neighbors also does is look at that entire application and what the applicant's trajectory has been. What challenges have they overcome? How have they demonstrated achievement and character um, and, and the values that we're really looking for in students? And uh, we accepted students from a very wide range of scores and they do phenomenally well, right? And so it's like, you know, it, not all test scores are created equal and, and we, we act like it is a standardized measurement, but it is not. Um, it is a universal measurement, but it is most certainly not standardized or free of bias. If, if I'm working three jobs and my score is low, it's not going to actually help admissions committees understand my potential um, for basic science, let alone physicianship, right? It will, it will suppress a lot of potential. And I think some of the tools that we're using, like the MCAT, um, absolutely do that. So I wrote an article called Academic Redlining in Medicine, where I basically kind of indicted the MCAT using public data to demonstrate how deep the cuts are specifically to the black applicant pool, but these cuts apply to first-gen students, to students who've received a fee waiver, to students who are um, indigenous, Native American, um, Alaskan Native, as well as students who are Latinx. So I, I think that we are, we are choosing to use tools that keep uh, really motivated, well-prepared uh, talent out of medicine. And that that's a choice. That's a choice that all schools are making who are heavily invested in making cuts um, based on those tools. I think one of the things that have changed within the past year or two is that a lot of medical schools have straight started to actually stray away from the MCAT. I think if I remember correctly, a lot of the UC schools did not accept or still are not accepting MCAT scores and are kind of going in blind using other metrics to be able to select their classes. What is your opinion about that? And do you think that this is a nationwide movement that will continue to switch into that, into maybe disregarding the standardized testing a little bit more? Yeah, so I don't think the UC schools are discontinuing the MCAT. I know that the undergrad universities as a, as a group are suspending the use of the ACT and SAT for five years. Um, and are doing undergraduate college admissions, I think that's a welcome change. We know that we don't need the MCAT um, as a, a, as strong of a predictor as it is claimed to be. Um, there have been programs where students don't even, there's a humanities and medicine program at Mount Sinai that's more than 20 years old that has published on their outcomes and their students don't even do any pre-med coursework. They have exactly the same outcomes uh, as anybody else. So we have quite a bit of rigidity and we're kind of set in our ways uh, as, as far as med ed and, and making sure that we are looking at other things. And I, I would love to let go of the MCAT. And I think there are also some conditional admit programs where students go through specific, you know, coursework. And then if they achieve a certain grade, you know, then it's like, then you can just start. You don't, you don't have to take time doing the MCAT and studying and all of that. I will say that I think we need to start teaching test-taking skills and approaches as part of our curriculum. The fact that we don't, um, my dean Paul Lyons said this a long time ago, if, if succeeding on standardized exams is part of our graduation requirements vis-a-vis -vis passing step one, step two, we need to teach that. And the fact that we don't is ridiculous. Like we would never say, tell me what the basics are of airway management and just never teach it and just expect people to go figure it out. And if you had a 
you know, a parent who was an anesthesiologist or a surgeon or whatever, then you would have a big advantage. And if you didn't, then you would be looking it up and, you know, trying to figure it out. And that's essentially what we've done with, with test preparation is we've exacerbated some of the structural inequalities. And so we can equalize those things by providing universal test prep, UWorld, and all those resources um, to students, to all students. We can provide the academic coaching. We can provide you know, more of the services that are that are needed. Um, and, and very often students make it really far without recognizing some challenges that they have in their own learning um, because they're brilliant, right? And they've been able to adapt and, and get by um, and be high achievers without having an opportunity to really focus on and improve in those areas. Now that it's a full-time thing, they're not competing with other things. Some of those areas of development come up and we have to be ready to provide that support to all to all students that need it. So to play a little bit of a game here, I wanted to ask if you had unlimited control over all aspects of medical school admission or even within policy nationwide, what do you believe are the steps that would need to be taken to create a more perfect system to one, help save what some consider a failing healthcare system and two, uh, in the context within our conversation today, create a more diverse system. Wow. If I had a magic wand, I would make universal healthcare a reality and I would unionize residents and I would create much more humane uh, working conditions for all health professionals, not just physicians. We They are so critical to our society and yet underpaid, underappreciated, and asked to take on these careers at incredible risk to themselves, which goes against diversity and and the inequity in specialty pay and all those things just exacerbates more of the levels of inequality and keeps us from finding great talent, right? So if someone would have been an amazing um, family physician and they feel like, God, I have a ton of loans, I have to go into something else that's more lucrative, that's a loss to medicine as a whole. So I think um, universal healthcare and fixing um, some of this payer stuff, putting more of our resources into supporting really talented students and providing the preparation, income support, uh, and opportunities for entry would, would be really great. Another thing would be to make medical education less rigid. So potentially to allow people to spend as, as much time as they need doing those basic sciences um, and, and give them an opportunity to get to mastery and, and the, the competency-based piece rather than saying you have to go at this speed. I mean, I over the course of my career, I have medicine has lost, I will say I have, but medicine has lost incredible talent because of the time limits and the rigidity and like other things in life that happen that just that just take people out. They and they can't keep up. It's not that they're not capable. It's that other things have happened in their life that have to take priority over what they're doing at the time. So um, making it more accessible, I would build more bridges from community colleges, which is something that um, some of the California uh, schools are doing now and something that I'm also committed to working on uh, moving forward as well. Another source, not just in getting into medical school and finishing medical school, but I know that a source of sometimes I have no better way of putting this other than FOMO, the fear of missing out. When mm -hmm. you are looking on your social media and you're seeing all your friends who are not spending all this time delaying their professional careers, their lives, not displacing themselves such as I did from a different from your home into a different part of the country. 
and you see these people who are successful within their own right, it does provide within the system, I think sometimes it makes it a little bit harder to just get through the years that you have to get through because you are able to see the outside world sometimes that maybe isn't always uh, seen within medicine. Yeah. Um, I would also make it free to eliminate that as a barrier because I, I think that the time, like you said, the time that you give up, right? We call that the, the opportunity cost or the econometrics of the opportunity really is a, is a barrier for a lot of people already. And so then the loans and everything else, I mean, there's a couple of studies I cited in my dissertation, but practicing black physicians are less financially stable than white physicians are. Um, you know, students who are from post-fact programs are likely to have much higher percentages of loans. Um, so, you know, there's, there's some real challenges there in creating equity of opportunity and making it free would also, if we had universal healthcare and we, we still gave it some social prestige, but it didn't have a, a false appeal. I, I think people who think they're going to get really rich going into medicine are a little bit delusional. Um, as you know, you have friends who've gone into business and tech and they're living their best lives in like two years, right? It's like, I don't know that, you know, not earning anything for eight years and then emerging with, you know, a very large mortgage worth of student debt is is the best way to, to build wealth quickly. Um, but I think the social prestige is, is there no matter what. And that's demonstrated in other countries that have different healthcare systems. It's still, you know, incredibly favorable and socially desirable to be a doctor, but we don't have to have a system that creates profit off of illness. Right. So kind of taking a step back and moving to a topic within diversity in medicine that's been circulating in news cycles and that you personally brought up when we were communicating to organize this episode is affirmative action. I think it would be remiss to not talk about affirmative action in an episode about medical admissions and diversity. So just to start off a little bit, when you take a look at the AMC data from the 2021 to 2022 application cycle, it's been shown that on average, students of color have lower MCAT and GPA averages than their white counterparts, often attributed to barriers created by systemic racism um, and white supremacy, as we've talked about before. Some also may argue that we should only be accepting students with the highest academic performance and really not consider race in this equation. What is your view on this data? Yes. Yeah, so the biggest missing element is that we don't have physician performance data and, phys- and quality outcomes in healthcare linked to these two markers. It does not exist. In fact, we have a lot of evidence that shows that it's not predictive, right? So how good of a doctor you are is not related to your MCAT score or your GPA. Um, that's just facts. Like if, if someone has an article that demonstrates that we look at the GPA and MCAT scores of say the class of whatever, and then we look at their outcomes compared to another class of people with lower scores, you're just, it doesn't exist. The things that are important about medical practice, we, we teach and we teach really well. So then it just becomes a matter of who has done the preparation and to, in, in order to succeed through the basic sciences and the training that we have, and then who really wants to be there, right? And, and if medicine is a public good and a product of our the services that our communities need, then it ought to be participated in by as broad of a base of people as possible. So I would argue that just choosing people based on those metrics is not actually going to meet anybody's healthcare needs because, you know, every year 
across the 150 plus allopathic schools, as I as I say in my book, you know, anywhere from 11 to 15 percent of really top scoring top scoring in both MCAT and GPA are not admitted to any schools that they apply to. So that is telling you that there's a selection parameter that is much different for a reason across all of the schools, assuming that those those students get a broad array of consideration based on their initial numbers. Um, and then in fact, they're not selected by any of the schools that they apply to. So I also think that until, you know, what the provider's board score or MCAT score or chemistry grade uh, shows up on the dash, the quality and safety dashboard, it's not relevant at this point, <laughs> you know? So um, we also have to have some faith in our licensing system in the United States, because we certainly doubled down on it um, since 1912, right? When USMLE and, and the, the state licensing boards were established, we have a professional sort of shelf, right? The professional standard that has to be cleared. And, you know, at or above that, you are a physician and below that you are not, right? So we need to also believe in those professional standards. Um, otherwise, this exclusion is is really, it, it's just a game. It's just a ruse, right? So if we believe that those standards are real, then we should be having full faith in our schools that are graduating students that are able to meet those standards and become licensed physicians. So as I mentioned earlier, one topic we really wanted to spend some time delving into is the recent announcement that the Supreme Court is going to revisit some of the previous decisions that they've made dating back to 1978, which upheld the constitutionality of affirmative action. Could you explain a bit more to our listeners since I think out of everyone here, you would be the most qualified to do this. The current situation of the Supreme Court ruling and what it all could mean moving forward. Yeah, so this is not new. We've been having these conversations since I started in medical education 20 years ago around a lot of opponents um, of affirmative action or a better terminology is a lot of opponents for consideration um, of uh, other factors, right, related to what goes into someone's application and their candidacy for a particular program or opportunity. So, you know, your previous question about there are people that think that we should just use, you know, these these scores or test scores or GPAs or something that's, quote, more objective. And I think the challenge is those things really aren't. And we're going to miss, you know, we're going to miss talent. So if we are restricted from being able to use race or gender as already is the case in a lot of states, we already know what will happen. Um, we've had some in the state of Washington and in California, some bans on the use of race um, in higher education and uh, it has not been good for diversity. Um, so there's ways that we can be creative and try to get around some of those, those pieces, but it's definitely going to hurt um, the public. It'll it'll hurt opportunity and and, I think a lot of that notion is really coming from again this this notion of white supremacism that if all these seats are you know to go toward people who've always had them forevermore then any change to that you know is is a threat um, to the status quo and to the supremacism that has been in place um, for hundreds of years. So we're really hoping. I mean, a lot of organizations have submitted amicus briefs um, to the court, including the Association of American Medical Colleges. And I have no faith in this court after all the ways that they continue to break my heart. Um, so I think we'll just, we're going to have to be creative and we're going to have to use 
other means and markers um, to identify talent uh, using uh, socioeconomic status or county data, uh, high school data. I mean, we're going to have to draw in bigger a, a bigger picture and get beyond race um, to something that's a little bit more robust. And it's on us to work quickly and, and adapt our tools so we don't suffer a huge drop-off in participation in the profession as a whole because of these potential court changes, which I suspect will take place. Yeah, that's actually news to me. I didn't realize that people within the space are actually operating under the assumption that these rulings will actually strike down something that I think has been held up for decades now. And and I guess my question to you is, is this the case for a lot of people within the space? Are a lot of people within admissions believing that using race within admissions is going to become, quote unquote, unconstitutional? Yeah, I mean, that could very well be the case. I mean, we never thought that we would see Roe v. Wade be overturned the way that it was. Um, so I think saying that we can't use race because it violates equal protections is a little bit ridiculous because those are in place because of so many of the inequalities within our society to begin with. Yeah, I, some people are saying that they do think that the court will go that far because they want, I mean, there's there's a pandering to the agenda of a certain constituency of, of Americans. And, and I think it really is too bad because, I mean, the largest group of, of poor um, and disenfranchised folks in the United States are people that the census designates as white, right? So all of these programs that are aiming to recruit doctors from diverse backgrounds, including those that include socioeconomic diversity, um, stand to lose. And all of the social programs that are getting voted against and cut um, hurt uh, white families by and large the most. Um, yeah, it's it's challenging because we have such a, a culture of digesting everything in, a, you know, a meme. So I think people don't understand some of the complexities um, and, and challenges related to this. One historical point I'll make, Erin, is that the, the hospitals, like Provident Hospital that existed in Chicago, started by Daniel Hill Williams, and I'm forgetting the amazing Black woman who actually went to medical school and started to, Emma Reynolds. They always took care of poor white folks as well. So the segregation in medicine was, was twofold. It was based on those that society labeled as white and upper class, and it was based on elitism as well, right? So the supremacism mindset has always hurt um, majority of, of folks who are poor, which is, again, those that the census would categorize as white. Um, and Black hospitals took care of poor indigent whites and poor Blacks. So that we have some models for what equity looked like from our early pioneer Black colleagues. And um, we're just getting farther and farther away from that, unfortunately. So I, as an Asian American, exist within some of the racial and ethnic groups that the argument against affirmative action have begun to utilize as a little bit of their poster child, their, their token um, race in which a lot of Asian Americans are, despite being minorities within the United States, are considered to be well represented within upper and higher education, including medicine. Mm -hmm. And so I have a little bit of a personal story that came up that sort of relates to this affirmative action idea, but I am as I said, I'm Asian American. And so just recently I was in a presentation by our DEI department here at Loyola and they asked 
my class of medical students during orientation to give examples of minorities within medicine. And of course, several minority groups were thrown out there by my classmates, such as Black, Native American, Latinx, LGBTQ, along with several other minority identities. But th there was this pause in answers, and it almost felt like that list of minorities had been exhausted. And the one that hadn't been said was Asians. And that presenter insisted that Asians existed within a minority group. And when that came out, there seemed to be a lot of chatter. Um, I looked around at a lot of my classmates during that moment. And we, as I said earlier, as Asians are, are a really small portion of the U.S. population, but I think we aren't treated that way. I think there was a little bit of astonishment or maybe a little bit surprised that Asians were still considered minorities, even though we are on, on a greater scale. It, it seems that Asian Americans are not necessarily treated as minorities and Asian Americans are well represented within a lot of medical school classes. So what does it mean to have this race of individuals sort of become this poster child where even those in within the race and ethnicity don't believe that they're minorities themselves? Asian American, what is the relevance of Asian American Pacific Islander identities in anti-racism and equity work in medicine? That is a really, really at the heart of what equity practice looks like. We may not be underrepresented among medical students, but I would submit that Asian Americans are underrepresented among resident leadership of chief residents, program directors, medical school deans. There have never been more Asian American deans of allopathic medical schools in the United States than black ever. So it depends on where we're looking when we're talking about representation. And I think that's why our language matters and we need to get specific. I think it also is relevant in that the caste system and, and power adjacency of white supremacism relegates Asian Americans to middle caste, right? To sort of this second place, the at least we're not that group. And it is so hurtful to so many AAPI communities that their needs are obscured by white supremacism as well. Um, many students don't know that Asian groups were also attacked by the KKK, um, were lynched. Um, so it, this violence against Asian communities has always existed and has just not been given a voice because it's always framed in the context of whiteness, right? Which the message of, of whiteness is, it's not as bad for you as this group. And so groups trying to say, like, look, there's a lot of anti-Asian racism out there that needs to be addressed. The, the answer is, well, you guys don't have it as bad as this group, right? Which takes the focus off the problem in the first place, right? So um, representation, when we're talking about that within leadership, I, I would submit that, of course, Asians are a minority group in the United States. They are historically excluded, depending on the context. They are underserved, depending on the context. They suffer health inequities uh, in, in similar um, disparate areas. And, and I think that this also is, is part of Dr. Dayrep's work is, what does it mean when you are coded in your chart as Asian, right? It's literally like half the countries in the world, right, right are considered part of that. Like, so, so we have to disaggregate and look at uh, biological origins and, and where people have grown up and what might have shaped their immune profiles at the biological level, rather than saying that if they identify as Asian, then this is what 
you know, this is what we think that their risk factors are. So I have a lot of challenges with, with discussing this because one, it's not a monolith. As you know, there's even within sort of a larger umbrella, which is Chinese, right? You have American born Chinese, you have Chinese from Hong Kong, you have Mandarin, you have Canton. I mean, it's a huge country in and of right. itself, right? So we really struggle, I think, to get specific around what we are talking about. And at Stritch, I think it was challenging to involve all students in recruitment in terms of, of when we're talking about at the front door representation um, and what we what we wanted in terms of our class and who we really needed to focus on in terms of representation. And then once everyone gets there, then we also really have to focus on equity practice and growth and development and health inequities and community, which is everybody's business, no matter what their their background is. So yeah, I, I think that we are not as advanced as we should be in terms of understanding the role of of Asian Americans in uh, speaking out against some of the anti-black racism that's that they're often used um, as weapons in, right? As as you said, like the 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 poster child of saying, you know, we know about the model minority myth and some of these other elements of of ways that Asian Americans have been silenced by white supremacism, you know, in, in this way of we're just going to allow you to be here and you should be quiet and be grateful. I think personally, and I kind of talked about my story a little bit, but I, I still feel a little bit wrong or guilty to use that quote unquote minority tag a lot because of that mainstream rhetoric. And is that is that a fair emotion? I mean, obviously, I think the answer is no from the conversation we've had. But what reassurance can you provide to students who might also be in a similar situation? I know there's probably several Asian American pre-med students who are listening to this podcast right now and maybe feel the same way as I do and have. Um, what reassurance can you pr- provide to these students about who might be kind of at this crossroads of their ethnic identity um, while applying for medical school? I think this is where we, when we truly operationalize diversity and we, we mean diversity, like in all senses of the word, diversity is not going to be code for a specific race or ethnicity that's on a menu of sorts, right? Like we, we really do mean diversity, which is the identities and experiences and backgrounds of students that come to make up who they are and how they see the world and how that might contrast or be different from someone else's. So when you say get a diversity question on your secondary or something, really think about what has shaped your worldview, right? And students have answered those questions in beautiful ways. Like I grew up in the military and I moved around a lot and here's how that shaped my personality. Here's how that shaped my views about conflict. Here's, you know, like just that's a beautiful type of diversity and understanding challenges within military families. Um, Students that have grown up with a grandparent or that have grown up in, you know, divorced families or just any reflections that you can offer um, on how your experiences have shaped you and helped you relate with others, I, I think can go underneath the the diversity umbrella. As long as it is authentic um, and as long as it is presented in a way that is a strength, right? A, a lot of times I think students who have had some privileges or advantages in the process feel that they don't have a quote sob story, right, in admissions. And they feel like they're going to have some kind of disadvantage because they don't have a sob story. 
absolutely not. And if you feel that way, you should go and read my book and try and understand um, what authentic growth um, and joy in that process really means. Um, because we're not interested in how well you play the game and we don't admit people based on pity, right? We admit people based on who they authentically are um, as a human, as it comes across in their application and their interview. So yeah, we we want students to be who they are. And there's so much similarity um, across many different elements, um, first generation and low income and immigrant and um, even like postbacks um, and non-traditional students or students who have an interest even in their their interests like within medicine, like business in medicine or public health. I mean, there's wonderful intersections of connection that come from the diversity of the class, right? The diversity of interests and, and backgrounds um, that, that shape um, the personality of the class and the connections they have with each other. I think that question of diversity and those diversity, quote unquote, diversity questions on secondary applications is something that stumped, it stumped me because as I said, I felt like a non-minority. And so race, gender, I think males are are well represented and have historically been the quote unquote dominant gender uh, force within our society. I don't speak another language. I am quite, uh, you can quote unquote whitewashed as I think some of people from my community might say, I didn't feel like I had anything that made me feel unique or or stood out. And I think for me, I started to find some aspects of diversity within my hobbies or within some of the other things that make up who I am as an individual. And so I guess I wanted to ask, and you've touched on this quite extensively, but just ask like, for those who might be sitting here being like, man, I am a white cisgender heteronormative male who is from a place where half California, where I'd say a good number of medical school applicants come from, what are some other identities that people might not first think of in themselves when they think of diversity that might help some of the applicants who are listening to this come up with some things that make them a little bit more diverse? Yeah, I mean, I think if if you didn't inherit any qualities or, or characteristics that you feel inherently fit that bill, then it's about experiences that you can seek to expand your worldview and to do that intentionally and to dig into what are some of the privileges that I enjoy, right? If I'm cisgender and heteronormative, what can I do to better understand the challenges um, of, of people who are transgender or agender, for example, and going and intentionally seeking out opportunities to serve and to become an advocate and to become educated in those areas is exactly the right thing to do and is something that will enhance not only just your life personally, but what you would then bring to medicine. Um, Some of the most phenomenal applicants that I have worked with over the years have been students with privileged and majority identities that intentionally chose to grow, right, in areas where they knew that they could make a powerful difference because of the identities that they brought, right, to be anti-racist or to to advocate for immigrant communities um, from more of a position of power based on the identities that you were born into, right, is is a very different undertaking. Um, But I think that that's experience that represents bandwidth to relate to others. And that's, that's what we hope that we get from diversity, right? We don't just say like, oh, if you're, you say that you're XYZ race or ethnicity, we automatically want you to come in. What we want from that is the bandwidth, the experiences, the skill set, the understanding, the relatability, 
um, that we think will translate to communities into, into the bedside. And so being able to explore identities of vulnerable communities that are not you. Um, and it's it's great for students of all identities to do this, right? Not just students um, who are who are from maybe more privileged or advantaged identities, because you can be a, a crummy applicant and be from a quote minority background, right? And just have not challenged yourself and not know anything about community work or advocacy. And and you know, as a dean, I we did interview um, students from historically excluded groups that were highly qualified, but they didn't meet what we were looking for at Stritch, right? Like they weren't about the mission and the committee was like, nope, we're not picking these people, right? <laughs> so, I mean, we would be doing our process a disservice if we chose people just based on the boxes that they checked because then you get outcomes based on those, those checked boxes and not the kinds of things you want to see in a student body um, and in their contributions to community. One of our last questions, and I think you have given us so much to talk about and think about for myself and for our listeners, there's this rumor, I think, that's been kind of going around that for those who might be from majority identities, that it could be beneficial to refuse to list your ethnicity or find a way to hide your race, especially you come from Asian or white heritage, and that this will help some students pass some of those automatic screening tools. Um, I think pre-med students are finding trying to find every which way to improve their application to be able to secure a spot within medical school. Is there merit to this rumor? Is this actually something that students should look into or or actually try to utilize when they're applying for medical school? Yeah, I'll answer this in two ways. One, with data. So when I looked at groups in my dissertation and looked at outcomes based on race. And I, I did a hierarchical linear model. If you're ever needing some more reading to do <laughs> as a med student, Aaron, you're welcome to read <laughs> my dissertation <laughs> if you have insomnia anytime. Um, but I actually had to group the people who did not list their race because it was too large to impute the missing data. And the number of students, as affirmative action has come under attack, the number of students refusing to indicate their race has gone up. It used to be around 3%, went up to five. Now I think it's over 12% of students that declined to list anything. And we don't know if it's because they think that there's an advantage or if because students now identify and describe themselves in ways that are much more complex, that are not captured in the, the bulleted menu list, you know, the checkboxes that are there to choose from. So that's interesting, but it was about eight, I think eight or 9% of my, don't quote me on that, but a significant portion. So I made them their own group and I ran outcomes based on the unknown people. The unknown people had worse outcomes hmm. um, than all the other groups. So I want to say like, for example, the average acceptance rate was like 0.92. And for students who didn't disclose their race, it was like 0.53, right? So it was much lower than for students who did. And the other way I'll answer it is operationally is if we ever... Schools generally do not use filters to look at race in the way that students are thinking. So in other words, we would filter prospectively if we were looking for, gosh, I've only interviewed, you know, five EO2s in my, or EO1, like low income students or first gen students. I'm going to go through and find more. I would actually select four students who have chosen that and look for them. I would not be able to select for, for people who didn't answer the question, they wouldn't end up in my in my set, right? So it doesn't give you any advantage 
not to disclose that. One, we're going to, if we decide to interview you, we're going to see you on interview day and make whatever assumptions are going to be made about your background. Um, you leave a lot of things unknown for the committee. And two, data wise, it is not something that we, that we would use that would advantage you to not have something there. Um, so we wouldn't say, for example, I'm going to take this filter and I'm going to do Asians and I'm going to take all the Asians out, right? We would use a filter to actually screen people in, in the way that the, the data and the background data that we get from AMCAS works. So, um, and, and if you think that there's going to be a huge disadvantage of listing your race in, in the process, then I would Put that back as a as a point of reflection of one do you want to go to a school that uses race in that manner and that would discriminate against you in that way um and two who are you going to be as a physician if you can't be who you are on day one right on on, on word one from this journey um authentically being rooted in who you are and what you're connected to and what your purpose is is inextricably linked to our origin stories as people and so i i would hope that students don't feel that they have to leave that behind to come into medicine boy are we getting it wrong if that's the message that students are getting well thank you dr nakai for all of your time all of your brilliant words all of your advice and all of your knowledge um, we here at medicus have looked at your initial episode as one of our motivating and inspiring factors for why we continue to pump out uh, episodes to hopefully provide some more information and education to our listeners. So once again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Of course. And lastly, if there are any places that our listeners can go to maybe support you in your research or your book or yourself as an individual and professional, where can people yeah, find you? Yeah, so my book is on um, all the big sites, Barnes & Noble and Amazon. It's called Pre-Med Prep, Advice from Medical School Admissions Dean. Um, so you can find me there. I offer um, free pre-med advising, um, group advising once a month. I do it on the second Sunday from 11 to 1230 Pacific time. Uh, and you can join and get that. Uh, it's a Teams link. It's the same link every month by emailing premedprepadvice at gmail.com. And that's also the, the email address is also in my book. So it's part of how I really stay connected to some of my source work, which is you know, honoring and being part of the journeys of students um, as they go into medicine. And I'm continuing to be privileged to work with uh, a group of students that come for advice and, and help each other and teach each other along the way. That's been great. And I'm on uh, Twitter at Dr. Nakai. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have questions, comments, or episode suggestions, you can submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.